We'll go to our study, and hopefully, by God's grace, we'll finish the book of Hebrews this morning. So Hebrews chapter 13, we are concluding this letter that many contest on who wrote it or didn't write it. Um, uh, there are many reasons that I believe that it was either Apollos or Paul, um, but we won't get into them this morning. Uh, but what I want to point out is one thing that's written at the end of this chapter. It's 13 chapters. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I'm a reader, so 13 chapters doesn't seem long. But in the length of books in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, this is one of the longer ones, and yet the author writes at the end of the chapter, I've written to you in just a few words, which makes me think it was the Apostle Paul because um, he tends to get a little windy in his uh, letters. But that said, he covers a a lot of ground. And so whether you believe it was a Paul or not, um, we continue in chapter 13 with essentially the theme today will be evidences of faith. So In chapter 11, we looked at great examples of faith, which uh, in many cases, this is probably one of the more known chapters of Hebrews, is chapter 11 because we call it the Hall of Faith. And I don't know about you guys, but if I had a trophy room in my house, which I do not, um, that would be the first place I would show everybody. You come over to my house, had a big trophy room, I would take you to that place first to go, hey, look at all my accomplishments. But since I don't have many, I don't have a trophy room. I have a bowling trophy, or I had a bowling trophy from kindergarten. And I tell you what, I kept that shirt. We had all the patches sewed on for a long time. But um, that said, I I didn't keep the trophy because I, at some point, decided that if we were going to move, we really didn't need to haul that thing around. Especially because I don't think I even won. It was like everybody got one. You know, even in 1988 or whatever it was, um, they were already doing the participation, participation trophy thing. But that said, um, chapter 11 is all great examples of faith. And we see the lives of the individuals he lists out. And I pointed out to you when we studied that, they were not perfect people. Oftentimes we see them called heroes of the faith. But I would submit to you that they're not heroes. The only hero in the Bible is the one who, 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 um, the one who was actually leading them. And that's Jesus. So in chapter 12, we had encouragements to faith. And one of the things that they gave as encouragements were actually things that would help you in your race of faith. And the race of faith is not a sprint, as we talked about. It's actually a long-distance run. And long-distance runs can't just be done by anybody that's never trained for them. You'll, you'll be heaving. You'll be losing your breath, and you, and you won't finish. Uh, but when it comes to faith... It's a long-distance run, and so we need to do things like um, look to those that have gone before us. We need to do things like let go of the weights that we've used to train, not run with the weights on our back, but we also need to forsake sin and anything that would discourage us along the way. And so chapter 12 encapsulated all of that. And then in chapter 13, we move on to what uh, is called evidences of true faith. And Warren Wearsby in his commentary actually uh, entitled the chapter, um, pardon me, but your faith is showing. And the reality in the Christian life is that your faith should show. It should be something that's visible, not only to believers, but also to those that don't know the Lord. And if it's not, I would question whether or not it's actually true faith. That's completely surrendered to the Lord. So if we're going to look at the evidences of true faith, we have to start by looking at 
what I call Exhibit A. And before I even change to this next slide, I'm sorry that I'm horrible at making PowerPoint slides. So I'm so glad you guys are close this morning because there's going to be a bunch of words up there. We probably need a screen about the size of this whole front of the church. Um, but I'll, I'm growing this, so, so be graceful with me. So, <laughs> uh, but for me, uh, the slideshow is as much as it is being for you guys to be able to see things. It's also for me to remember so I don't get off on my little tangents that you guys know I'm, I'm good at. So that said, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1, he says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers. For by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. He says, marriage is honorable and among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So he talks about conduct that I've labeled here as kingdom conduct. Oftentimes we think of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And we go, okay, that's something that God's going to bring down to earth in latter days, in in the days after this. The kingdom is not now, and many of us would see that and say, yeah, absolutely, the kingdom of God is, has not come yet. And yet when Jesus came at his first coming, what he said was, the kingdom of God is near to you. And so he was speaking about himself. Jesus was the seed of the kingdom of God. It was the very cornerstone upon which the kingdom of God is built. And so we need to have kingdom conduct because whether you recognize it practically or not where we live and our society and and the way that it's going the reality is the kingdom of god is near you and scripture actually says it's within you and so if it's within you then it ought to pour forth from you james said how can bitter and salty water pour forth from the same source if the kingdom of god is within you then when our cracks show paul writes that the kingdom of god should actually shine out of us And we actually got to see a foretaste of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven when Jesus took James and John up, Peter, James, and John up on the Mount of Transfiguration with him. And while he was up there, it's contested which mountain it was, he was actually on top of that mountain and he actually, one uh, guy that I listened to actually said that he actually let the the covering that kind of concealed the glory that was in him, he let it go just for a little bit. And he ascended And he was brighter than any launderer could get your clothing. And what it says there is that just at that time you saw Jesus, and then they saw uh, Elijah and Moses next to him. And it was so bright. But they didn't have to have introductions. They already knew who was standing there. But what I want to point out is that Shekinah glory that they saw in the wilderness, the Shekinah glory that they see in the temple in the Old Testament, it was there upon Jesus, and it actually exuded from him. It couldn't be hidden. And so with that in mind, we have the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God in us by the Holy Spirit. And so there ought to be conduct that pours forth from that living source of water, and he lists it 
as brotherly love. He says, let brotherly love continue. And the idea is brotherly love towards the body of Christ. And and, in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, he writes something, or Paul writes about this brotherly love in verse 10. He says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. That the way that we treat one another is actually a way we can serve the Lord. And, and it actually is mentioned there in Genesis chapter 4, verse 9, as a side reference. If you think about brotherly love, what did Cain say after he killed Abel? And, and then God said, where, where's your brother? Of course, God knew where his brother was. But he was asking, he was giving Cain an opportunity to repent of his evil works. And he said, where's your brother? And he said, who am I, my brother's keeper? Now the kingdom, the, the fleshly answer is no. Everybody do their own thing. But the kingdom answer is yes, you are your brother's keeper. That's what you were made for. That's why you have a brother. So you can protect each other. So you can love one another. You show preference to one another. Number two, he, he lists hospitality. Hospitality should be something that is a constant precedent in the kingdom of heaven. He says, remember the prison, excuse me, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Jesus took this a step fa- further, and he said, uh, you know, you guys always invite people over to your houses or bless those who can pay you back. What, what benefit, what kind of blessing is in that? Why don't you serve and love those and have people over to your house and feed them people that can't do anything back in return? For when you do that, your reward is in heaven. And so show hospitality. And we don't need to be told to show hospitality to people that we're familiar with, do we? I mean, it's something we naturally do. He says, entertain strangers. Now, in their culture, they did this. This was natural to the Hebrew. This was natural to the Middle Eastern. To this day, if you go to the Middle East, you don't have a place to stay, people will offer to let you come under the roof of their house. And there's a couple of stories that kind of make you uncomfortable, but even in the book of Genesis, before Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed, we have, um, we have these angels that come in. Of course, they don't see that they're angels. They think that they're men. And they actually go to Lot's house, and they say, hey, won't you... You know, they're, they're in the, the square, and Lot sees them and says, why don't you stay under my roof? It'll be safer here. He knew it was unsafe. They're in Sodom. And so he brings them in, and for whatever reason, I still don't understand, uh, these men come to the door, and they say, uh, let us come in that we may know these strangers that have come into town. And we know from, biblically speaking, they didn't just mean that they wanted to greet them. They wanted to know them physically. And that was part of the sin that was going on in, in Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet what he said was, um, hey, don't do this evil thing. Why don't you take my family? He offers his children to them instead in order to pre- protect his guests. This was Middle Eastern thinking. They would do that. Now, it still doesn't excuse it. It's absolutely horrific. Just even the thought. But that said, we also see that then in Judges 20 and 21. Something very similar and very grotesque happens. But for a better example of hospitality, let's look back to Genesis chapter 18 because we see right after there's some things that take place, there's, a couple, there's three men that show up at Abraham's door. And as they show up at Abraham's door, 
Abraham invites them and, and says, make food for them to his wife. He wasn't being a chauvinist. That was just the order of their household. And so she made bread and she poured wine and they, they had this meal together. And when we find out that it was the, these three men that represented the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in the New Testament, we actually have this idea of the king of Melchizedek. Abraham gives an offering to them that they were either God or they were angels. We're not sure. But the idea is that in doing what he writes here, remember, he says, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. And I would submit to you that there are many times where it is unsafe to pick up a hitchhiker, where it is unsafe to invite people into your home that you don't know. And you have to pray through that. We need to be wise. The world that we live in is not safe. But I think that there's also times where God calls us to, to feed those that we don't know and bring them into not just a room or a building, but into our houses to love them in a way that they do not expect to show them that the kingdom of God is near, that we are servants of the Most High God and that He is able to provide for the widow, for the orphan, for those who are in need. And when we do that, we actually represent the Father in a very special way. And in 3 John chapter 5, or verse 5 through 8, he says this, <clears throat> third john 5 through 8 he says beloved you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church if you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of god you do well because they went forth for his name's sake taking nothing from the gentiles we therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth John writes that we are fellow workers together for the truth when we entertain people and bless them uh, in practical ways. And so he says, brotherly love, hospitality, concern for others. And then he, uh, well, then he says concern for others. So in Matthew chapter 25, he talks about this, but I'm referring to verse 3 in Hebrews 13 where he says, remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Now, for us, we have an example of this. If you've been paying attention to the media, there's, there's a church called uh, Early Rain in China where there are believers who have their pastor first because he's not teaching what the Chinese government says is okay. He's been thrown in jail, and he knew this was coming. But he decided, he purposed, I'm going to obey Jesus and not necessarily the government, because they were trying to essentially water down the gospel, and, and he couldn't do that with a clean conscience. And so he taught the truth, knowing that it would cost him. And he even wrote a letter. If I am to go to prison for more than 48 hours, release this letter because it is really where I'm at. Whatever the government says is not true. I want you to release this letter that I've written ahead of time. But as a result of that, not only has he been arrested, but many of the people that go to his church have been arrested. And so what is our responsibility to us to still have freedoms to worship? We could cry out politically. We could use our power to try to intervene socially. But the first thing that we need to do is pray for them as if we are there in jail with them. Now, we can't relate to that, can we? We struggle because we are free to worship. Nobody hindered us. And so the reality is we have the opportunity 
to intercede, to get in their situation, not necessarily by going there, but by praying through the situation as if we were there with them. Like someone who's outside of a battle, being able to see things from a proper perspective and pray as if God is in control. If you've ever seen the movie War Room, the idea is that a war room in a battle is they're making decisions for the people battling outside of being shot at. With a clear mind and seeing scripture for what it says, praying for them, not being in the situation, but recognizing that if they were in the situation with them, we would want people praying for us. And so having a deep concern for others. And what Matthew chapter 25 says in verse 36 He says this, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Jesus says down there in verse 40, he says, then he will, excuse me, he says, and the king will answer and say to them, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it, to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. How do you want to give thanks to Jesus? One way is that you can actually bless and pray for and love and meet God's people in their situations, whether it's practically or through prayer. And by so doing that, you're actually lavishing gifts of love on the feet of Jesus. You're actually ministering to him. You're you're actually blessing him by blessing his people. And so these are all things that are evidences of kingdom conduct. He says marriage. He says marriage is undefiled and pure before the Father. Verse 4, marriage is honorable among all. And the, excuse me, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So in the Christian church, there ought to be purity in the marriage bed and in the homes of God's people. Uh, so in this case, Um, marriage is where our faith should actually be lived out first. And and in the case of the marriage bed, physical intimacy in marriage inside the will of God enriches marriage and glorifies God. He says, be fruitful and multiply in Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. Should be loyal and pure in God's sight. But what does he mean by fornicators and adulterers? Well, fornicators is any type of physical intimacy outside of marriage by unmarried people. Now, marriage is defined in Genesis by God as one man and one woman. That's just how he laid it out. It's his design. It's his best plan. And yet, in our society, it's becoming offensive almost to teach that, and almost to the point where I think that eventually they'll make it illegal. But the reality is, you can make it illegal all you want. It is what God designed, and it is his best. It's his program. And so any type of physical intimacy outside of marriage by unmarried people is fornication. And that goes to living together. That goes to the appearance of evil. It's just, it's wrong and it's dangerous for us. And unfortunately, right now, the statistics show that the church looks no different than the world in this. And so why would we need to teach this? Why are we preaching this to the choir? Because we need reminded The world erodes everything that God teaches us 
And yet God reminds us over and over in Scripture so that we can be transformed by the renewing of our mind daily. Just like our bellies. I, I heard this this week, so i got to drop it in. But did you know that our bellies have acid in them that is so powerful that it actually absorbs and breaks down the, the element zinc? It's amazing. Zinc is very strong. And yet, our stomach lining can contain it because it constantly is renewing and protects that stuff from getting outside of the stomach into the rest of our body. It would kill us. It would make us go septic. And yet God, His Word, when absorbed and taken into us, constantly renews our spiritual and our faithful tissue. It, it keeps us, instead of from breaking down like everything else does in the world, like rust and moth destroy, it actually renews us day by day by grace. And yet, so God teaches us in His Word that not only fornicators, here's the problem, we harp on those who are sexually immoral and don't follow God's design, and yet within the Christian church, adultery is just as bad. Any type of physical intimacy outside of the marriage covenant by married people. So he, he doesn't just talk about the, the sexually immoral that aren't married. He talks about those that are married and sexually immoral. So the marriage bed is something that kingdom conduct should be affected by the gospel. And then right relationship to possessions. And as Americans, I think this is something that we need to guard against with our thoughts all the time saying, Lord, you've given me all of this. Am I properly related to my possessions? Because I don't know about you guys, but my possessions, though I think I own them, oftentimes start to own me. And they start to cloud my thoughts and become what I invest my time and my money and my efforts and my strength into. And then I forget about people. And so rightly relationship to, to possessions. Now he says, let your conduct be without covetousness. And what's interesting is that this is the one point of the law that Paul recognized that he had failed in. He's like, I've followed all these other points of the law, and I found myself to be a Pharisee of the Pharisees. In the law and living it out, I was without problem. And yet he said, then I recognized that in my zealousness to be godly, I was actually coveting other people's faith. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? That Satan can, and that our flesh can, take something that God meant for good and actually pervert it and make it something that causes a sinful attitude within us. So to covet means a love for more of anything. To be discontent with what you have. Now I have there the reference for you in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, many of you could probably quote it. But I think it, it stands needing repeated. First Timothy 6, verse 6, he says, Godliness, in other words, righteousness, or being like God in proper relationship, with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Now how many of us today, of all days, would be content with food and clothing. He doesn't mention a place to live. He doesn't mention a thing to drive. I don't, you know, sometimes I struggle with this because it's very clear. He says we should be content with food and clothing. 
But those who desire to be rich actually fall into a temptation and a snare and they into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition for the love of money. Not, <laughs> he says the love of money is a root of all evil. Not, the love, not money itself. Money's not evil. People misquote this all the time. He says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and actually pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So contentment, being content with what God provides is key and it should be part of our kingdom conduct. So we continue on in verse 7. Well, let me finish with verse 6. He says, um, So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So the idea is, God has promised never to leave us, nor to forsake us. So with whatever we have, if we are content, it's not only that we're content with what we have, we're content with who's provided it. Our right relationship and our worship to God should be one of thankfulness, gratefulness. And so in verse 7, he continues on and he says, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. He says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace. And then he throws this in, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. So remember, he's speaking to Hebrew Christians who, for the longest time in their life, they've actually spent so much more time devoting themselves to the dietary restrictions of a Jewish person. And they, they find their salvation, they find their worth, they find their faithfulness to God and what they have done for him rather than what he's done for them. And so they're tempted to go back to these regulations in order to please God, if you will. And so um, in this case, he's saying that we need to be established not so much by what we eat or don't eat. He says it is good that our hearts be established by grace. Grace. Grace is unmerited favor with God. It's unmerited that Jesus, the Son of God, would die in our place and provide salvation for us. And so we need to continue by grace. So he starts and he says, this whole section is about submitting to spiritual leaders. Exhibit B of your faith, the evidence of your faith, should be submission to spiritual leaders. Now, as a pastor, I don't even like teaching passages like this because everybody's going to look at me and say, well, of course you would say that. Your leader. But the reality is, is that's just how God set it up. It's, it, God set it up so that there would be leaders within the church because if there are not leaders in an organization, it's chaos. If you were to go to your job and there was nobody in charge and everybody was in charge, nothing gets done. And, and there's no direction. There's no wisdom. There's just everybody does what's right in their own eyes and there's no common direction. And so resources get wasted and things don't get accomplished and so 
God says that we need to be in submission to spiritual leaders. I say this as a pastor, I am in submission to my pastor. And I'm also in submission to the board of this church. It, everyone follows somebody. But ultimately, we need to be in submission to Jesus himself. And so with that being said, if we are in submission to our good shepherd, he is also placed under shepherds in our lives. And we are to follow them. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, he actually said, imitate me just as I also am imitating Christ. In every way that I'm following Jesus, then you should follow me. Now, that's, that's a big disclaimer, right? Because if there's areas in my life that I'm not submitting to Jesus, then you should ignore what I'm saying. You should pray for me. Remember me, he says. So in verse 7 through 9, he says, Remember those who rule over you, uh, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct, knowing that their conduct affects a greater group of people. Now, another way that he says remember them is actually referring to those who have led us who are no longer with us. Many of us have had those in our lives that God spoke to us through, and yet they have passed on. They're with the Lord now. So we need to remember their conduct and the results of their faith where it brought them to, how they lived, their testimony of God's faithfulness, the fruit that was produced in their life, what they taught, that they pointed you to Jesus. So when he says, remembering them, then he goes on to say, <laughs> as you remember their conduct, he then points to Jesus in verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So here's the problem with following earthly teachers. Many times they follow the Lord, they're faithful, and then all of a sudden something happens and they do something to, we'll use the, the cliche or the phrase, fall from grace. They decide to make a decision that, that ultimately puts them out of being qualified to be a leader in God's church. Maybe they're unfaithful in their marriage, or maybe they're, they've done something to sin against the Lord. And, and so what do we do at that point? Because we're in a day and age where maybe you listen to somebody online and they've got a big following, or they've written books that you've read, and you've kind of banked a lot of your faith in what they've taught and in their conduct and in in their testimony, and then all of a sudden they do something that makes them completely uh, unfollowable. And so, you know, oftentimes we unfollow them on Facebook, right? Or we do something in that manner. But the reality is we, we start to discredit everything they've ever done. Now, here's the problem with that. All truth is truth, whether the vessel is pure or not. And so we need to be careful that we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. We need to follow the good stuff that they've taught, to recognize that, to pray for their restoration and reconciliation with the Lord, and, and to remember what they've taught. There, there was benefit to it at one point or another. Think about those that, the mighty men that followed King David, and then after he got older, he stopped going out to battle, and he sinned with Bathsheba, and he had Uriah killed to, to hide it, and then, and then he still had to be the leader of the nation. And he repented. We see that in Psalm 51. And yet there was so much devastation in the lives of his family because of his disobedience. And so uh, we need to recognize that if our faith is built on a human being, at one point or another, they're going to let us down. And hopefully not like the worst stuff where they become disqualified. But even if they do, 
we need to look back and go, wait a minute, maybe I put too much stock in that person and I need to refocus on the lordship of Jesus himself. Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is our good shepherd. He will never change. He will never fall from grace, if you will. And so we need to, at those moments where those leaders let us down, recognize that we put too much stock in them and look back to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, I'm following you. And so this leader that's in my life, I pray for them. And and until you bring a leader into my life, I need to be obedient to someone that's over me. But I know that they're going to fail me. And so it's kind of messy, isn't it? Christianity is messy. The church is messy. Um, so, but we're also called to be a part of it. He says, remember them. Jesus will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Verse 17, if you zoom down to the, the verse 17, he says, obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. He says, Obey them, for they watch over your souls. They're under shepherds. They, they're there as God's mouthpiece to warn you and to look over your lives. And, and, and the scary part is, is that we, I am accountable for what I teach. I am accountable for the way that I lead the church and the way that I lead you guys as you follow me. But the reality is, in Ezekiel, it was the same. Ezekiel was called to be a watchman is what God called him over the nation of Israel. And he warned him, he said, Ezekiel, I'm going to tell you things that I want you to teach the nation. And you are not responsible for their response to your teaching them. But you are responsible to tell them whatever I tell you, whether it's easy or hard. And he actually told him, if, you, if I give you a warning for them, and you don't tell them, and they don't repent because of that, then their blood is on your hands. You're accountable. But if you tell them what I tell you and they don't repent, that's on them. But if you tell them what I tell you and they respond and they repent, then you're blessed. You've done what you've been told to do. So my job as a pastor is to hear from the Lord, to teach God's word faithfully, but to warn those who are needing warning for their safety. And yet in our day and age, uh, I don't know that uh, many of us are very good at receiving correction. We live in a society that says, you know what, I don't like what you said, and so I'm just not going to go to that church anymore. I'll go to the one down the street. We are horrible at receiving correction. And, and so many times, I, I'll just confess this, I'm less likely to even give it because I would rather you just keep coming. And yet if I don't give it, the Lord says the blood is on my hands. So if I ever, or one of the leaders ever, share something strong with anybody here or anyone that's listening, the reality is we've prayed over it and we've done it with fear and trembling and we don't want to push you away, but we also don't want you to fall away from the Lord, which is more important. And so obey them. Watch, they watch over your shoals. And when you obey, they have joy because they get to see your faith increase. But when the, you disobey, it is a sorrowful thing. And I must say, it deeply affects me uh, when, when I share something with somebody and they go off the rails. I have to tell you that I have years, I have a decade of interacting with young people at, my, at Parkland Chapel in Farmington, and I will submit to you that most of them have either watered down the faith and departed or are on the way, and it breaks my heart. It destroys me inside. 
partly because I feel like I wasn't what I was supposed to be, but also partly because the things that I shared with them that I learned from the school of hard knocks and through God washing me in the water of the word, (laughs) they were like, you don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) And it kills me because I do know what I'm talking about. I've experienced the consequences of years and years of sin and unrepentance. And yet uh, their response is not up to me. God's got it. You know, so that's a step of faith that you can pray for me in. In verse 24, he says, greet all those who rule over you. And all the saints, those from Italy, greet you. So he says, greet those who rule over you. So all that said, I'm going to sum up worship in verse 10 through 16. He says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Now, in the Jewish faith, they had an altar, one altar, and it was located in the temple. And only those who served in the temple were able to eat from that altar Verse 11, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin and burned outside the camp, therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, he suffered outside the gate. Therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city. We don't have Jerusalem. He's talking to Hebrew Christians. Our faith is not in this temple. Our faith is not in following God and worshiping Him through sacrifice. He says, we don't have this continuing city, but we seek the one that is to come, speaking of the new Jerusalem. Therefore, by Him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. But do not forget to do good and to share For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So I was listening to a pastor who is long deceased who was sharing about worship this week from the Psalms. And he said something that really stuck out to me. He said, worship is not just singing. Oftentimes we equate worship with singing worship music. He said, the act of willfully offering yourself to God in order that his purposes would be fulfilled in you. That's worship. So worship looks like submitting our conduct, submitting our way, submitting our activities, submitting our thought life. Every piece of it is how we worship God. We like to segment things. We like to have compartments. Okay, here's my free time compartment. Here's my school compartment. Here's my work compartment. Here's my family life compartment. But when we sing to God, there should be a piece of it that is not just singing songs that we didn't write, although that's amazing. We can sing words to God that we didn't have to go through the experiences to write the songs because most of us, we're not songwriters. I'm not, right? So thank you, Lord, for that. But there's also a piece of worship where we should just have our, our hands up or at least our hearts lifted to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm not mine, I'm yours. And, and getting that new perspective again, making an offering Our offering is not bulls and goats. I'm thankful for that. That's messy. It's a messy job. To bring an animal all the way to church, to lay it on an altar, to have a group cut its throat and then to spill the blood out and to cut out all the right pieces and the fatty lobes and the whole works in Leviticus is, it's, it's a slaughterhouse. Tell you what though, those who worship God that way, recognize the consequences of sin 
They recognize that sin brings forth death. You don't have to explain it. They see it. I've sinned. Here's this animal. It's killed. There goes our food for the next week. You know, whatever. But the reality is our sin brings forth death as well. And so our worship should be this offering. Our offering's already been made, Jesus, right? He is the sacrificial lamb. He's the spotless without blemish. It's been made. So what do we offer? Our response and thankfulness should be to offer ourselves, to offer our hearts to the Lord. But where's our altar? For the Jewish Christian, they're going, but we got no altar to go to. Well, our altar is Jesus. The altar is where they made the offering. For us as Christians, our offerings are audibly praising God with our lips, whether it's on a Sunday morning, whether it's on a Wednesday night, whether it's in the shower. <laughs> I sing in the shower. Lots of people do. Whether it's in the drive on the way to work, whether it's the time that you're just overwhelmed by life itself and you decide, I'm going to sing this song that's on my heart instead of complaining. Offering our hearts up to the Lord and being thankful. But then it doesn't just go to singing songs. He says our sacrifices should be doing good and sharing. And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, the writer there, John, he says this, By this we know love, <clears throat> because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? If the love of God abides in us, our God is a giving God. We ought to also ought to be givers. We also ought to be generous givers. And then he lists prayer. Uh, prayer is a key aspect of worship. It's where spiritual and practical surrender takes place. And I would submit to you, Jesus' death on the cross didn't happen that day. His death was a death of many deaths surrendering to the will of God in prayer. <clears throat> when they couldn't find Jesus in the morning, he was oftentimes bowed before the, before the Father and worshiping. He was praying. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, the battle was won when he was crushed in the midst of prayer in the Garden of Olive Crushing, Olive Pressing. And so, our final slide of promise. <laughs> Verse 20 through 25. <clears throat> I didn't read verse 18. Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you sooner. So he asks for prayer for himself. And then verse 20 says, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, Make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Christ Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is a benediction. So he's listed all these things that should be evidenced in our lives as believers. But he does this funny thing. He says, these are all the things that should be evidenced. But then he essentially says, God is faithful who also will do it, which is what the writer in 1 Thessalonians said. 
He said, all these things should be evidenced, and yet God is the faithful one who will do it not only in you, but he'll do it through you. And so he closes by saying, may our God, the God of peace, who brought up Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, may he mature you in every good work to do his will. Maturity should be leading to our conduct and our activities being according to his will. He says, may he work in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He will work in you. He will change your thoughts if you'll surrender them to him. He will change your attitudes as you surrender them to him. He will change your works. He will change your disobedience to obedience, but it takes surrender. So in the closing remarks, he he has closing remarks about individuals. And I want to submit to you that God, while he does care about groups of people, he's also intimately involved in your life and he cares intimately about you. And I think that's why the writer always has these notes at the end of these letters about these individual people. This letter is written to a group, but God cares about individuals too. He says, and I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the f- wor- this word of exhortation. Because a lot of the things he's teaching them are very difficult. They, they're having to say no to their previous life patterns. They're having to say no to their culture. Some of them, it means that their families won't talk to them anymore. He says, please, I, I beg of you, bear with the word of exhortation this strong encouragement, for I have written to you in a few words. Even this chapter wasn't just a few words. But then he says, know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see, if he, shall see you if he comes shortly. So he's involved with Timothy. That's why many people think this is Paul. He says, greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. So he's writing to Hebrew Christians. Again, to us this applies, but he's writing to this group of people that are so constantly tempted to go back and try to earn their salvation by what they do. But here's the thing. We're really no different, are we? I don't know about you guys, but there are days where I'm like, I'm firing on all cylinders, I know it's all God, and yet I, I, I miss out on my Bible reading, or I don't spend as much time in prayer as I would like to. And then I'm like, oh, God's not pleased with me. It's a lie. Jesus looks down upon us, he sees Jesus. Excuse me, the Father looks down on us, he sees Jesus. He sees God's grace in our lives. He sees his covering, he sees the blood of his Son, and he is well pleased with Jesus. So, Father, we thank you for this book. I confess that it's been a stretch for me to teach it, but I thank you so much for rooting things out of my heart. I pray, Father, that as we continue in your grace, that your grace that saved us would also uphold us and continue to make us complete for every good work in Christ Jesus. Father, let our faith, let our words not be where our faith ends but may our feet match up. May we have the conduct of your kingdom. May we have a life that's surrendered to worshiping Jesus. May we submit to those that you've placed in leadership over us within the church. May we worship you with more than just songs, but with our lives. And may you be glorified in all of it. Set us free from the legalism that we build in. 
Set us free also from the license to sin that we oftentimes take. Lord, make us complete and glorify yourself through our lives and help us, Lord, as we have testimony to bear, to confess before others how thankful we are for the change that you've made, how much you've set us free. Your word is meant to set us free from sin and the things that entrap us. May it have free reign to do so. And Father, may the same power that rose Jesus from the dead empower us to live lives that are victorious and abundant and God-glorifying in this day and age that we live. May we live differently in a way that causes others to see Jesus in the work that he's done and want to know why, want to know how they can receive it as well. Lord, let our light so shine before men that they would see our good deeds, that they would see our lives and glorify our God who is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.